our God speaks, he commands it to be, and it is so, and not only is it so, it is good. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. we begin our study this morning, there are beginnings of fairy tales, and the fairy tales inevitably begin with something like Once Upon a Time. Some of our greatest stories that we've ever told begin with these words, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But what about the beginning according to the evolutionist? If we were to go back to the very beginning, what would evolution say uh, is the beginning? Uh, And so what we have to do is we have to look uh, at some writings that scientists have come up with. We have to look at the the data that they have presented, and we have to hear the stories of, of where they believe the origin of life actually came from. And we don't necessarily have... Uh, the means of observing the beginning. In other words, we can't necessarily, no one caught it on video, and so we can't actually uh, see what happens. So we have to turn to evolutionists or secular scientists and ask them, what is your account of what you think happened in, quote, the beginning? And so according to the consensus of almost every secular scientist today, The universe's beginning, when that came to be, was around 14 or so billion years ago, with the Earth clocking an age of around four and a half billion years, give or take a few million. And so according to the LA Times, I want to read to you a very different account, a very alternate account to what Dean just read to us in Genesis chapter 1. So listen to these words from the LA Times. And this is what most secular scientists say. This is This is the beginning. In the beginning, there was light, but also quarks and electrons. The Big Bang spewed out energy that condensed into radiation and particles. The quarks joined into protons uh, and careened wildly about in a hot, dense, glowing goop as opaque as a star. Some time passed, 300,000 years or so. Space expanded, matter cooled, the electrons and protons, electrically irresistible to each other, merged into neutral hydrogen, and from this marriage, the first atoms were born. Space between atoms became as transparent as crystal, pretty much the way it looks today. The rest, they say, is history. Atoms merged to form dust clouds, which grew into stars and galaxies and clusters. Stars used up their nuclear fuel, collapsed and exploded in recurring cycles, fusing the various elements in the process. Occasionally, a stable planet condensed around a second-generation star where carbon-based life forms grew into, among other things, cosmologists like us, the better to contemplate it all. Is that what happened in the beginning? Sounds like a fairy tale. Well, some people hear that description, and because we were raised in, in public school, we say, yes, evolution is where everything, the Big Bang is where everything came from. And so when we hear a description like that, we go, I guess that's what I've been taught to believe, and that's what I'm supposed to believe. But my question is, where did all of the light and the quarks and the electrons come from? Where did they come from before that? Uh, wh- where did the forces that attracted or repelled them come from? So so if you and I were to land a maroon on a desert island and we see a watch roll up on the shore, none of us would say, you know, this watch was formed from watch parts over many millions and billions of years, all washing onto the shore together to form this Rolex. We wouldn't do that. We would say, no, there's a designer behind this. This shows intelligent design, so to speak. And the clues left for us would cause us either to revere the design and the designer or to ridicule it, to come up with some alternate story. 
Today we're gonna study the six days of creation and how God simply created with a word. And we looked at this last week. If you're here, we began our series in Genesis. And if you're new to our church, welcome. We're glad you're here as a guest and we want you to um, pray about this becoming your home church. And one of the things that we do at Shoreline is we teach verse by verse through the scriptures. We just finished the book of Romans and now we're kicking off the book of Genesis. So we're studying these passages uh, together line on line. And one of the things we learned last week is that God just simply spoke ex nihilo from nothing and created. In fact, we opened our gathering with Psalm 148.5, which says he commanded just from his voice and creation was created. We believe in creation by fiat, that is creation by declaration. God simply declares, let there be, and there is. And we're going to see eight of these let there be's this morning in the six days of creation. And it's my hope, my intention in this sermon is that by studying God's care and God's intent and God's design in creation, that that produces something in us. And what, what I'm praying that it produces is that it would, it would rouse each of us in our hearts to reverent adoration. That as we look at God's skillful and careful design in creation, we realize you and I, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. You're not an accident of evolution. You're not just a series of mistakes that happened over time and, and an oops baby. No, you, are, you were formed on purpose, as we tell our kids, for a purpose. And so that should cause us to turn in worship to a loving God who took the time to not only create us, but to create all that we see in the universe. And so it's my hope that by studying these verses, we will once again this morning, maybe it's been a long time for you, you've been far from God, and this is where you can realize God is a gracious and compassionate and loving and just God, and he's a God who communicates, and everything he does, he does well. So we have a lot of ground to cover, as you notice, these verses. Uh, and if you were, again, if you were raised in evolution, I want to encourage you to lean forward, not lean back. Don't cross your eyes. Don't roll, you know, roll your eyes and cross your arms and, and just say, I don't want to. No, let's really lean in and let's talk about this. Well, I'm going to talk about it. Uh, don't dialogue with me. After the service, we'll dialogue. Um, but we're not afraid of science, as we studied last week. I think science actually supports what the scripture says. So look with me at day one. We're going to walk through each of the days of creation. We'll pause on day six and come back to it next week. But verse three, God said, let there be light and there was light. You could say it this way. God spoke the word light and light comes out from his presence 186,000 miles per second. If you were to clock the light from our sun from its distance in 93 million miles proximity to Earth, the light that left the sun eight minutes ago traveled the 93 million miles to reach us now eight minutes later. Now, if you were trying to replicate the, 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 the speed of light in that same regard, if you had a car, obviously our cars don't, I don't care what car you have, you don't travel that fast, but if you had a car that, let's say, will go at a pokey 65 miles per hour, when you drive it constantly from the Earth to the sun, it won't take you eight minutes, but you'll get there eventually. It'll take you about 163 years to cover the same distance that light covers 93 million miles from earth to sun. Now, God just speaks the word light and it comes into existence and scoffers go, well, hold on, Christians. How can there be light on day one if there's no sun until day four? And that's a valid question. We're not afraid of answering questions as creationists. There's a few ways to answer this. First, scientifically, scientifically, there is a big difference between the energy of light and what you and I think of when we think of turning on the light. So there's a difference between energy of light and illuminated light, as far as we look at in the electromagnetic spectrum. So when God says, let there be light, it's very possible he was not just saying, let there be illuminated light, but let electron, uh, electromagnetic spectrum exist. So light, visible light is just one aspect uh, of energy in the form of photons. It's just one part of the, the spectrum of electromagnetism. So there's a lot more. You've heard of gamma rays. You've heard of, you've heard of radio waves or infrared waves or X-rays, ultraviolet. You've even heard of microwaves. And microwaves, of course, that's not just the box that exists over your, your oven where you pop popcorn. If you're a Christian, by the way, you should eat popcorn. Uh, 
the microwave is using that technology to heat up your food. And yet it's just part of the electromagnetic spectrum, spectrum just like visible light is. So light could mean much more than just visible exterior illumination. Um, not only that, but scientists have confirmed that even anomalies like black holes that, that contain concentrated darkness, even they will emit radioactive light. So it, it's not only possible, it's probable that a star is not needed for there to be visible light in the universe. Now that's from the science perspective, but the Bible also sheds light on this. We learn in Revelation 22.5 that in the new heavens and the new earth, night will be no more. It says there will be no need, uh, no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So a star is not necessarily needed for light. And in the new heavens and new earth, God himself is the light. And we learn that from 1 John 1, 5 and Isaiah 60, verse 19. God is light. And so there's no need for a sun. Eventually it'll get there, but in the meantime, God exists and there is light. Now, I love verse three. In the Hebrew, it reads this way. Light be, light was. God speaks it and it comes into existence. And I love the spiritual connotation of this that Paul points out in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. And we'll talk more about this in our time of communion later in the gathering. But Paul says that in the same manner that God spoke light and separated it from darkness, you and I as Christians have been separated from darkness. We've been brought into the kingdom of light. And notice verse four, God saw that the light was good. This is a good thing. In fact, James 1.17 tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of lights. The first thing God looks at is light. He says, this is good. And you're going to see that refrain over and over, uh, that what God creates is created and it is, it is good. Now, scientifically, if we had no electromagnetic spectrum, that means a lot more than there's no, I can't see, it's dark. There's a lot more going on if there's no light. So light is very good indeed. There would be no transfer of energy from the sun to the earth, so life would be unsustainable on the earth if there was no light. There'd be no chemical bonds. There'd be no forces that govern the atoms in all of matter. And so the universe as we understand it, which is comprised of atoms and forces which attract and repel, it would all collapse in on itself. So when God says this is a good thing, it is a very good thing. We learn in verse uh, two that the earth was form without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep, but God didn't create the darkness. Here he creates the light and then he separates it from the darkness. And we're gonna see in this chapter a series of separations. So not only is light separated from dark, but we're also gonna see that the waters are separated on another day, that land and sea are separated on another day, and that day and night here on day one is separated. So the formless and void chaos that we read about in verse two had been energized by the Spirit of God, and now this became the cosmos, and God's first act of creation on day one is to speak light and then separate it from darkness. Look at verse five. God called the light day, the darkness he called night. There was evening and there was morning the first day. Now, please circle the word day. You wouldn't think that's a controversial word, but it is. The word day is argued by many that it can be translated differently, and they're not wrong. This is the Hebrew word yom, and you actually can translate this word as not just a day, but an age. So dads, we've done this, haven't we? Maybe your dad said this to you, back in my day, and I, I vowed I would never say that to my kids, and then I became a dad. <laughs> and so I've said to my kids, back in my day, we didn't have smartphones, we had pagers. And, uh, and so, you know, it's just, it's a thing, dad. We're, we're going to, we're going to do that. We're going to be cheesy dad jokes. That's where it's at. So just embrace it being a dad. But uh, when we say back in my day, we don't mean literally on a particular day on the 3rd of August. No, we, we mean in the age of when I was a child. And so the argument by some is that, that these are not 24 hour ish literal days where there's a revolution of the earth on its axis. No, these are long eons or ages or period, periods of time. Uh, but there's nothing in the, the Hebrew to believe that 
would be a long period of millions and millions of years. The only reason we would think that way is when we look at the world and say, based on uh, specific dating and the age of the apparent age of the universe, then there must have been a long period of time. We watch it on Disney or Nat Geo. They always say billions of years. And so there, we've got to account for a long period of time. So maybe that's it. Maybe it was, maybe it was a gap between verse one and two, or maybe, maybe these days aren't really days. Maybe they're just long uh, epochs or eras. Um, but how do we explain evening and morning? If these are long periods of time, uh, you would think if this is just a day, he'd say there were day, and then he'd say there was night, and then there was morning, there was a day. So if this is a long period of time, what does evening and morning mean? Uh, what God is doing here, I believe, is he's establishing a period of time that is a template for mankind. God is, exists outside of time. And so we have dark, and we have light, we have evening, we have morning, and that's one day. And so he's establishing time for us. And so then we come to day two. On day two, God creates the sky and the sea. But notice that we have the word expanse. You see the word expanse mentioned in verses six, seven, and eight. And some translations have the word sky here. Uh, and so literally, though, this is the word heaven. Notice it says in verse eight, God separated the waters below and above, and then he created this expanse, and he called it heaven. And we'd say, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. Heaven, isn't that where we go? Didn't I learn that in Sunday school? We go to heaven. Uh, and so I just want to explain this. There are actually, according to scripture, three heavens. So the one that's mentioned here in verse eight is really earth's atmosphere. So there's a separation of water below the atmosphere. And then before the flood, there's water above the atmosphere. And then the second use of the word heaven is the expanse of space. So Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. That's a picture of space. So the stars, day after day, night after night, they're proclaiming the handiwork uh, of an artisan God. So space is the, is the heavens, if you would. But then there's the third heaven. 2 Corinthians 12 mentions that Paul uh, spoke of, of being called up to the third heaven, which is this idea of when we think of heaven, capital H, where God dwells. We do know there's gonna be a new heavens and a new earth uh, in the new creation. But the world before the flood of Noah was a very different world than we have today because we don't necessarily look in the sky and see an expanse and then above that expanse, water. We don't necessarily see that. In Genesis 7:11, however, we learned that the flood waters not only rained down, but they bubbled up from the earth's crust as well. So there was a, a breaking open, you could say tectonic plates, there was activity, there was water that came up, and we'll, we'll deep dive into Noah's flood when we get there in a few months, I think, actually. It's going to be a while before we get to it, but we'll get to it. But then there was also, according to Genesis 7, um, raining down from the heavens. And so there's an argument that there may have been a very thin layer of water, couldn't be too thick because visible light wouldn't go through it, but a thin layer of water vapor in Earth's ionosphere. And that would have created conditions that would have buffered creatures from harmful solar radiation and also caused longer lifespans, which Genesis does communicate. But what I don't want you to miss is that God, again, speaks, and then God separates, and there's evening and there's morning. So now we have light, we have the sky, we have the sea, and then we come to day three the land and the plants. So verse nine says, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And again, God saw that it was good. So the waters that are covering the entire earth are gathered in one place. They're separated from the land and then the land begins to produce vegetation. Now, if you believe that the day is a long period of time, we have a big problem here hermeneutically. We have a big issue. Because if you notice with me, day three, plants are created, but it's not until day four that the sun is created. So if these are billions or millions of years each day, then now we've got plants that have to be sustaining themselves with no photosynthesis for millions and millions of years. Uh, and so... Uh, if we believe, though, that this is a literal day, the plants are created in a mature state, ready uh, for reproduction, ready for photosynthesis, ready for pollination. They go through one night 
and then they can experience that, then you take it at face value. But notice with me that in verse 11, God says, let the earth sprout vegetation and have plants that yield seed and fruit trees that bear fruit which, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And then it says that it was so. So here on this day, God creates the vast array of beautiful plant life that people will travel to Europe to pay big bucks to go see in someone's backyard. These are the gardens that we say, wow, look at that beautiful garden. God was showing off his creative wonder and his handiwork here on day three. He not only creates the vegetation, which literally sprouts up from the ground, which is incredible enough, but he creates it in such a way that if it were to expire, he doesn't have to come back and create another set of trees and then another set of flowers and then another set of plants. No, he creates it in such a way that within each plant, there's the capacity for reproduction. So, so everything necessary to reproduce a fully functioning tree is germinating within the seed of that tree. And so if you grew up like I did with fruit trees on your uh, property, I grew up with tangerine trees, and the tangerine trees will, will sometimes they'll, they'll bear fruit or they'll shed their fruit, or humans like me or animals will, will get them. And so the, the seed is within the fruit. It's able to, to replicate itself uh, for, because it's built right in. The seed is, uh, it contains all that's needed to reproduce it. And uh, I was in California recently and had the opportunity to visit the redwoods. And they are incredible. That's not me, by the way. Um, but the redwoods are probably the tallest, arguably the tallest trees on the planet. And they're hydrostatic wonders. So they siphon water from the ground fighting gravity and friction all the way up to reaching heights of sometimes 400 feet, 40 stories tall. And yet, even though they have this ability and they're huge, I was just walking through the, the park just going, this is incredible. Look at God's handiwork. And yet the seeds of a redwood tree are the size of a coffee bean. And all that's needed to build that incredible tree is found within that tiny seed. Uh, and so God created not only animal or not only uh, plants that way, but also animals that way, to reproduce after their own kind. The flora and the fauna that God produced on this planet is amazing. In fact, just do a Google search of these different plants. For example, the telegraph plant. The telegraph plant. I'm not going to try to pronounce the actual scientific name for it, but. Uh, it's a plant that actually moves and dances. That's a JPEG, but if you were to watch a video of it, it actually moves and dances in sunlight. There is, of course, the Venus flytrap. You've heard of that plant. It's a plant that is carnivorous, so it traps uh, flies and unsuspecting insects and then consumes them. It's a plant that's carnivorous. And then, of course, if you're a math nerd, you love the Romanesco broccoli. Now, a lot of people don't like broccoli, but this one's pretty cool. This one actually... Uh, grows in a self-similar shape, logarithmically spiraling toward its own center. And it's mathematically just a marvel. And so this is amazing artisan work that God shows off and does all things well here on day three. But if you would circle that phrase according to its kind, would you circle that phrase? In fact, every time it comes up in this text, circle it. You're going to see a bunch of marks in your Bible, or if you have a scripture journal, good job. Uh, according to its kind. That's going to come back in an important way in just a moment. But as day three comes to an end, we have the sun. Well, we don't have the sun setting yet, but we have the evening, we have the morning, we come to day four, and this is when the sun is created. God said, verse 14, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them, so there's, there's more than one, let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years, that's why they exist for earth. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens. So again, there's that second use in, the, in, the, um, in space, if you would. To give light upon the earth, and it was so. And then notice it says in verse 16, God made the two great lights. And great doesn't mean that they're very impressive in all of the universe or even in our galaxy. But in comparison to earth, these are very great lights. So the greater light is our sun to rule the day. And the lesser light is the moon to rule the night. And then we have three little words, and the stars. And Moses just reads through those so quickly. We're going to talk about it in a minute. But there's a lot packed in those three words, and the stars. 
so God sets them into the expanse of the heavens and to rule the day and the night. So on this day, day four, God literally just speaks and the stars are birthed into existence. Now, I personally believe that when God spoke the galaxies into existence, they were created in a matured and an aged state. So the reason I believe that is when I look at Adam, Adam was on day one a newborn in, in some ways, right? He was, he was brand new on day one. Now, some of you new moms, when you give birth, you don't give birth to an adult male, you give birth to a baby. And yet on day one, Adam was not a baby. He was a matured adult. And so I believe that God very well may have created the universe in this matured, aged state. When Edwin Hubble discovered that galaxies were expanding at what seemed to be a constant rate outwardly, this is what led to the theory of what we call the Big Bang. Because it seems to be going out at a, at a constant speed. We just trace back the timing, and that seems to be about 14 billion years ago. And that's where it started to gain credibility. But I believe it's highly likely what we see in our natural world was designed to reflect a matured state. So on day four, God creates the sun, he creates the moon, and then we just get that little sweeping statement, and the stars. And I don't, I don't want to just move past that too quickly. This is where God does some incredible work. Our sun actually has a name, its, its name is Sol, um, and it's a star, but it's actually a tiny star when you compare it to other stars. So just for frame of reference, that, that big orange thing is not the sun and then the little dot is not us or Mercury. That little dot is our sun held up next to the largest observable star in the universe that we've traced yet. And I'm sure we'll find the technology to find a bigger one. In fact, this week, the Hubble Space Telescope, I think it was Wednesday, actually uh, sent back images of the furthest observable star over 12.9 billion light years away. But they did this back in 1995. I think I was a senior in high school in 95, and uh, the, the Hubble team pointed the telescope in one unpromising, boring section of sky where there didn't seem to be anything exciting. And so they point the telescope there for 10 days. As the data came back after 10 days, they pieced together this composite uh, picture with all the data, and the data was huge. And so they get all the data, they put this together, and this photo is known as the Hubble Deep Field. And look at all those stars that show up. Isn't that impressive? Well, those aren't actually stars. All of those light dots that you see are galaxies. In fact, in that one little pixel, they were able to count over 3,000 galaxies. And each one of those galaxies, of course, has, has hundreds of thousands, if not millions of stars within them. And to us, we look at that and we go, that's just one little spot in the night sky. You could hold a dime up and in the, in the, 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 the span of my thumb, there's 3,000 galaxies there, all with innumerable stars. And yet the Bible says in Psalm 147:4 that God counts the number of the stars and he calls them all by name. It should cause us, when we look at the expanse of space and the wonder of creation with the stars, we should go, wait, this universe is so huge. Did God create this so big to be inhabited? Or did he, did he create it so vast that the heavens would declare his glory and cause us to suddenly shrink back a little bit and to realize how small we are, how inconsequential, how Psalm 8 says, what is man that you're, you are mindful of? When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, who, who am I? I'm nothing. And so in verse 16, we, we read that the lesser light is going to rule the day. This, of course, is the moon. This doesn't give off light. It just reflects light, the light of the sun. But notice verse 14. God said that, that these lights were given particularly to the earth to be signs and for seasons, for days and for years. So if you think about how we track our calendar, we track our day based on the revolution of the earth on its own axis. So that's about uh, around, just around 24 hours, give or take a little bit. Uh, then, of course, we have our, our year, and our year is, is one circuit of the earth around, one, uh, you know, one orbit around the sun, and that's every 365 and a quarter days. That pesky quarter is what causes us to celebrate a leap year 
every four years when we add a 29th day to the shortest month, February. And if you were born on a leap year day, if you're born on February 29th, of course, you're only eight years old, <clears throat> if we actually add up the leap years, we establish our month. Our month is based on the lunar shadowing of new moons about every 30 days. So our day, our month, and our year are, are surrounding, are based on the sun, the earth, and the moon. And yet our week, our week is built on or based on something far greater, and we'll learn that when we get to Genesis chapter 2. Now look with me at day 5. Day 5 is the sea and air creatures, and, and now we see the word swarm. So God has created the earth now to to be filled. So verse 20, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And then God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm. And there's that phrase I told you about, according to their kinds. We'll look at that in a minute. And then every winged bird, according to its kind. And then in verse 22, we have a, a phrase that will come into play next week when we look at man. But it says, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, there was morning, the fifth day. So on this day, on day five, we look into the ocean and we say, this is the day when God created the largest of all creatures on the planet, the blue whale. This is when he created my favorite animal in the ocean, the mimic octopus. If you have a, an opportunity, Google the mimic octopus. It can mimic, I think, over 17 different animals, including one where it seems to be running across the ocean floor, which what animal runs? It's an incredible uh, creature. And then, of course, in the sky, we have the peregrine falcon, the fastest uh, uh, bird. And then, of course, we have uh, America, uh, the bald eagle. And so notice the phrase in verse 21. I drew our attention to it earlier and had you circle it according to their kinds. Now, the Bible here seems to be affirming what's known as adaptation. Another phrase for adaptation is microevolution. And I know, I don't love the word evolution being in that phrase, but the idea of adaptation is very scientific and it's very observable. Natural selection, very observable, very scientific. We don't need to be afraid of natural selection and of adaptation. So what happens within adaptation or microevolution is then within a species, animals have the, I guess you could say the freedom of adaptation, adapting within the species based on the environment, based on mutation, genetic drift. And these are small changes over a small period of time. We actually can observe that scientifically. So you've heard of mosquitoes that, that become uh, re uh, resistant to insect repellent. That'd be an example of that. They were able to adapt uh, and they were able to become resistant to something that man created. And so the problem though is when evolutionists apply that scientific idea to one species adapting into another species. You see, when the Bible says according to their kinds, it's very plausible that what, what Moses means is that within that species, it was according to its kind. It replicates according to its kind and then there's species variation but not from one species to another. And let me just give you this example using the greatest creature on the planet, dogs. Um, we see in the uh, canine species, we see, of course, the beautiful golden retriever. We see the super cute Labrador. And then man got involved with it. And then, of course, we have, after man's <laughs> interference, we have poodles. And then someone had the brilliant idea of matching a Labr Labrador with a poodle, and we have a genetic mishap. No, no. If you have a Labradoodle, that's fine. That's good for you. Praise the Lord. <clears throat> but see, here's the problem. Uh, we, we, we see that within a species, but we don't see that ever observable in zoology where a dog is adapting into a cat. Well, first of all, dogs are more superior than cats, so that wouldn't it'd be the opposite order anyway. Uh, but... Cat stays within the species of feline. Dogs stay within the species of canine. In zoology, there is no, uh, not even in the fossil record, there's no record of, let me just be clear, of ape becoming man. And someone would say, well, hold on. Yes, there is. Uh, I remember growing up, I heard about Lucy, uh, which, by the way, in many ways was a hoax. 
Oh, well, what about this, this one transitional form? Well, if we took all of those and, and added them up, we have a tooth here, we have a femur there, and we have a lot of, we have a lot of uh, biological nonsense where we try to squeeze in these transitional forms. If there was a series of adaptations from ape to man, then we'd see that in the fossil record. Not only that, but where are those transitional forms today? And if all of those are extinct, why do we still have apes? If the ape progressed and evolved into man, why is the ape still around? We have the original, and then we have, the, we have man. Why do we have nothing in between? Uh, and so macroevolution is something that is not reproducible using the scientific method. The scientific method is where we have an observation or a question. We research it. We form a hypothesis. We test it with observable experimentation. We analyze the data and then we report the conclusions. What evolution does is it starts with the conclusion. It says this is what must have happened, and then it does it backwards. It analyzes the data in the wrong lens. There's no experimentation because we can't repl replicate this scientifically. And so then the hypothesis becomes a self-defeating argument. And this Wednesday, I'm actually gonna do a special Facebook Live uh, around 7.30 on Facebook on our um, Shoreline page. Uh, called Challenging Evolution. I have eight arguments um, against evolution and then eight strong points for us to consider for those who are creationists. So uh, make sure you tune in on Wednesday at 7.30. But here on day five, the great sea creatures, the birds of the air are now swarming the skies and the seas. There's evening, there's morning, and we come to a very critical and a very unique day, day six. Look at verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. So on day six, God creates some of the lovable animals we know. Our family, we love pandas. So it was day six that God creates the panda. There is, of course, the three-toed sloth, which we often refer to our teenagers as sloths. And then... Maybe you'll argue with me. There's an argument that even dinosaurs were created on day six. But then we have the creeping things. We have the red-spotted jewel beetle, beautiful creature. We have the coastal peacock spider, which is, almost looks like he has a little face. And then, of course, we have the cockroach. But don't worry, ladies, I'm not going to show a picture because we'll lose half of you. <laughs> now, as, as cute or as impressive as these animals are, the real showstopper is the climax of his creation, which is mankind. And we're going to pause today and come back to that next week because I think it deserves its own sermon as we look at the creation of male and female, of man and woman. But as we consider day six specifically, there's a, a big burning question that, that evolutionists don't want asked by creationists. Like we're always, it feels like we're always on the defensive. And, well, let me explain what we, there's one argument that evolutionists don't want creationists to bring up. And the question is, how did complex life forms, carbon-based life forms, all suddenly explode onto the scene in the fossil record? Scientists call this the Cambrian explosion. It happened about 550 million years ago, according to scientists. But uh, this explosion only had five to 10 million years of time to happen. And yet, almost all of the animal phyla appeared dramatically out of nowhere. And that's not enough time. Evolutionists agree that's not enough time for all of the transitional forms and all of the complexity to take place. And so what do we do? It all appears, we have trilobites and single cells, and then all of a sudden we have all of this animal life bursting on the scenes. What happened? How do we explain it? And so they've come up with a new hypothesis, which is called punctuated equilibrium. And that goes something like this. Here's what happened. We don't really know, but out of the blue, just life will suddenly appear. It'll intermittently, and it will immediately, randomly appear and just explode on the scene out of nowhere and cause new speciation. George Wald wrote in the Scientific American Journal these insightful words, not a believer. He said, the, I think this is funny, the reasonable view uh, he says, is to believe in spontaneous generation. Punctuated equilibrium. Just out of, out of the blue, things just explode. But here's what he says. The only alternative is to believe in a single primary act of supernatural creation. There is no third position. Amen. 
And so I would say, instead of pronouncing it explosion, let's pronounce it creation. <laughs> because it does show up on the fossil record. Out of the blue, everything uh, seems to be created all at once. So what takes more faith to believe? A purposed, intelligent design by a loving creator or random, spontaneous, intermittent accidents? You see, when we really get down to it, there's only four main views of creation. Um, you, you could, of course, read Genesis and say, well, maybe as John Walton does, maybe this is the, uh, the functional creation. Maybe God was creating, like you create a university, but then you fill the university and it actually gets started. Maybe that's what he's doing here. Or you could look at this and say, maybe it's a historic creation idea of God creating Israel. But we have a lot of issues with both of those uh, interpretations from the text itself. So when we come to creation, we go, there's really four primary views. There's young earth creationism, which is taking the text in a literal view. Uh, we would argue that this is a literal six-day creation. And thus, if we were to trace the age of the earth, we can't do that well, but it's probably a younger earth. Uh, and this seems to be probably, not probably, this really is a more faithful approach to the Genesis account as literal text. Um, Answers in Genesis is one of the main ministries that um, helps promote young earth creationism. But then there's old earth creationism, and these are still believers. We would argue with old earth creationists, old earthers as I call them. They're sometimes called progressive creationists, and they would say God created the world in successive stages or eras, and that's where they insert the millions of years, um, looking at the uh, the fossil record and the age of the universe, which again is, is, uh, is, is it's theory, ultimately. And so they would say, yes, God created Adam and Eve, but it was like 100,000 years ago. Um, but then we have a hermeneutic issue because now we have death before Adam. We have death before sin. Romans 5 says, sin entered the world and death through sin. And so we have the, the decay and death and an era of destruction and despair before we have sin entering the world. So we have a big issue. Uh, the leading group that believes in old earth creationism is reasons to believe, and I believe Hugh Ross is the main uh, founder of that theory. Then there's evolutionary creationism, which it does, it sounds a bit like uh, a paradox, uh, or theistic evolution, and they would completely adopt Darwinian evolution as far as the origin of life, and they would say, yes, we came from a single cell. God wound up the earth, got it started, and it's the processes uh, of evolution that he began. And yet it stands in great contradiction of what we just read. And so uh, evolutionary creationists don't believe typically in a literal Adam and Eve, but that Adam represents mankind, and this is more, a little more uh, poetic language. Uh, and they would... Uh, obviously be missing out on verses where Jesus affirmed that it was not like that in the beginning, speaking of Adam and Eve, that Romans 5 speaks of a literal Adam. We're in Adam and we're in Christ. Not in a figure, figurative hominid, but we're in an actual man. Uh, and so the, the main organization for this view is called the BioLogos Foundation. And then there's one secular group. So these are not necessarily Christians, but intelligent design was promoted by some scientists who when they look at, if you're in the medical field uh, at any uh, degree, and you look at the complexity of life, intelligent design came about because people said, hey, Darwin didn't have the electron microscope. And so when we observe DNA, in fact, when we observe um, the birth of a human, we realize there's so much more complexity uh, than Darwin ever understood. And so they look at the scientific evidence alone and say there has to be intelligence. Like there's DNA that didn't come from nowhere. That didn't just haphazardly come about. If you came home and you saw a Mona Lisa picture that had just freshly been painted and there was a, uh, a, a, you know, a paintbrush in your child's hand, you, you would say, okay, something happened here, honey. We need to talk. How'd you do that? Because that came from intelligence. And so they, they don't look at the scripture, but they look at science and they go, there has to be a designer. Uh, now, they don't say it's Yahweh, the creator. They would say it was probably aliens. A aliens seeded the earth. And so if you want to find those wild theories, you can watch the History Channel and subscribe to that. Um, the, the leading group there is the Discovery Institute in Seattle. So these are the four primary views of creation. What I want us to understand, though, is at the end of the day, or we should say at the end of the sixth day, we, what do we have? We have a loving, 
benevolent, just, faithful, true, eternal, infinite, independent, triune God who spoke into existence the heavens and the earth. Now, when we, the title of this series is Genesis from creation to new creation. When we bring this home to us today, it's fun to get into speculating theories and talk about what could have happened. I, I love doing that and I encourage you, I invite you to have a conversation with me afterwards. But one of the things that we see here, though we're, we're talking theory and we're talking the creation, what has God done in our lives? What has he done as far as recreating us, making us new? So when we see Genesis 1, we see a, a word or phrase that keeps getting repeated. We see that God speaks, that whatever he commands is, and then it's good. God speaks, it is, and the evaluation is that it is good. In our own lives, where would we be without a communicating God? The fact that God has spoken, that what he has spoken has come to pass, and that what he has spoken is good. You and I, we have the privilege and the freedom and the joy to delight in the command of God, in the word of God, in the voice of God Almighty. And may we never take it for granted that our God is a communicating God. I love what Kevin DeYoung says. He says, we cannot know the truth or know ourselves or know God's ways or savingly know God himself unless God speaks to us. Every true Christian should feel deep in his bones in utter dependence on God's self-revelation in the scriptures. As Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He goes on to say, in Amos's day, the most severe punishment to fall on the people of God was a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. There's no calamity like the silence of God. And yet God breaks into the silence in verse three, let there be light. He's done that in our lives, hasn't he? He's brought the light of the glory of the gospel into each one of our lives who have trusted Christ, who've repented of our sins, and who have submitted our lives by faith to Jesus, our Lord. We compare God's word with our word, and we realize our words fail us, our words betray us, our words fall short. We don't utter life and creation and health. We speak death and decay. One poem put it this way, comparing us to God and words. The poem says, you cannot put one little star in motion. You cannot shape one single forest leaf, nor fling a mountain up, nor sing an ocean, you presumptuous pygmy, large with unbelief. Or you cannot bring one dawn of regal splendor, nor bid the day to shadowy twilight fall, nor send the pale moon forth with radiance tender, and dare you doubt the one who has done it all? You see, there's something within each one of us, I believe, that's demonically driven that seeks to challenge the creator, to pit ourselves against him and say, well, hath God said, where we elevate ourselves. And yet when we see the wonder of God's creation, we should rightly fall into place humbly. When our God speaks, he commands it to be, and it is so, and not only is it so, it is good. He didn't just, think about this, he didn't just speak the gospel from the heavens. No, he sent his son to come and exegete the father, to display, to communicate who the father is. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus lived a perfect life submitted to the word of God, the will of God, the law of God. When others uttered their mouth and spoke words of condemnation deceptively against Jesus, the scripture says he opened not his mouth but he was silent as a sheep before her shearers. On the cross, he uttered, Father, forgive them. He cried from the cross, it is finished. He became sin for us. He took the blame and he bore the wrath that we deserved. And this is the power of the cross. So because of the finished work of Jesus for us, by faith, you and I have also had something declared to us, uh, a word spoken, and it's fiat justification. That is, not creation by declaration, but justification by declaration. You and I have been declared righteous by faith, and this is to the glory of God. And so this morning, as we approach the Lord's table as believers, uh, we do so with humility, we do so with reverence, we do so with awe, and we do so with gratitude that our God 
has not left us as orphans, but he's communicated his loving truth and his heart to us through his word. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads together. We're going to close this time, this sermon and song, and I just encourage you to stay seated as we sing. We're going to recount the power of the cross. Our ushers are going to come up in just a moment, and while your heads are bowed, we're going to take a moment to uh, distribute these elements. We want you to take uh, one of the uh, cups there, and underneath it has the bread and the juices on top. If you're not a believer, if you're not a Christ follower, just let the, the elements pass by you. Let the tray go by you. But as I say often, don't let the grace of God go by you. This morning, you're forgiven in Christ. and He has finished the work. And so we want to celebrate that together as we consider the, the body broken, the blood poured out. So in just a moment, we'll sing together. We'll um, distribute these elements. Just hold on to them and I'll direct us in a time of the Lord's Supper in just a moment. So let's bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you for creating the heavens and the earth with a word. As we'll see next week, the creation of Adam was not with a word, but forming the dust of the earth. And Lord, we thank you that when you look at what you've created, you call it good. You've done a new work of creation in our lives those of us who have turned from our sin and we've yielded to Christ. Lord, we thank you that you have made us a new creation, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which you prepared in advance for us. Lord, we thank you this morning as we approach your table that you have done the work from first to last. And so, Lord, we acknowledge the power of the cross. We thank you, Lord, and we celebrate and we worship the God who communicates, the God who spoke, and the God who still speaks. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We relish it, we uh, revere it, and we thank you. We ask the Lord now that you would turn our hearts towards the Son, that you tune our hearts to sing your grace, that we'd be encouraged as we sing and as we contemplate what you've done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.